بسم الله بسم الله والحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه وله أما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله تعالى وبركاته How's everybody doing? Alhamdulillah Good stuff So today inshallah ta'ala we're going to be speaking about Usul uh, al-Fiqh And I'm going to be summarizing a book that I read a long time ago And then I reread it because I thought it was so good Al-Wajiz fi Usul al-Fiqh it's by uh, the Shaykh Wahba Azuhaili, who, subhanAllah, actually only passed away in 2015. Uh, a Syrian scholar, a very amazing, knowledgeable scholar, who wrote this book called A Summary of the Principles of Jurisprudence. So I'll be going through my notes. Uh, I really didn't deviate much from the text at all. I really just took what he uh, provided with maybe a few small additional points here and there, but it's pretty much entirely just covering this book, which I think is very important and necessary to understand the principles of fiqh, which fiqh basically means Islamic law. So how do we derive Islamic law? From what principles do we derive rulings? That's kind of the question that we're going to be dealing with. And so, to introduce the topic, we want to start with our definitions. So what is the definition of usul al-fiqh? And so a definition here is ta'rif usul al-fiqh al-ilm بالقواعد التي يتوصل بها إلى استنباط الأحكام الشرعية الفرعية من أدلتها التفصيلية which means what? The definition of a sul fiqh is knowledge of the principles now notice that principles is in red we're going to be defining that in a moment so it is a, a knowledge of the principles through which the derivation of Islamic rulings which we're going to de uh, define as well is reached from their specific proofs so, simply put, we have to know what our principles are. Uh, and this is really going back to the root of things. You'll see what I mean in a moment. So, what do I mean by an example of a principle? An example of a principle, as you can see, I put it in red. I tried to color code it. An example of, uh, 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 of a principle is what? Al-amru lil-wujubi wa-nahi lil-tahrimi. This is how simple and basic it has to get. That a commands are for obligations and prohib prohibitions are for impermissibility. So this is pretty obvious, right? Like if I tell you right now, get up, get out of here. What does that mean? That means I'm obliging you to get up and get out of here. Seems pretty obvious, right? That's just how language works. And same thing, if you're about to touch something and I say, don't touch that, you could say, based on the fact that I'm doing a nahi, a prohibition, I'm saying, don't do it. What does that mean? That means it's impermissible for you to do it. Seems really obvious, but this is a basic principle of what? Of language, right? So you take this basic principle of language. So for example, when Allah says, establish the prayer, it implies obligation. So that's the first one, the red. So it says the definition of usul al-fiqh is what? Knowledge of the principles, right now we're talking about a linguistic principle, through which the derivation of Islamic rulings is reached, uh, uh, from their specific proofs. So let's give an example of what are rulings. A hukum is a ruling. That's why I put it in green. A, or ahkam is the plural. That's a ruling. Yes, I want you guys to get familiar with these types of words, this language. Hukum ahkam, right? A ruling. Which is the fruit of extracting from the source texts and arriving at some sort of a conclusion. There are five basic rulings in Islam. Five basic rulings. Obligation. Well, what's obligation in Arabic? Somebody help me out. Fard, another word for it is what? Fard, wajib, that's right. So fard or wajib. Now some scholars differentiate between those two and we can talk about that later. Uh, but still, in general, fard, oblig obligatory, wajib, necessary, something's necessary, something's obligatory, you have to do it, right? So that's fard. And so I give the example of prayer, fard. It's wajib, it's obligatory. Number two is recommended. What is the Arabic term for recommended? Mustahab, another term is for it is what? What? Mandub, I think somebody said, yes? Did somebody say mandub? 
So mandub or mustahab, these are terms that mean it's recommended, it's, it's encouraged. Like for example, I gave the example of writing down your debts and your contracts. This is something that you should do. If I borrow $10 from you, I don't have to write it down, but I definitely should. It's recommended that I write down, I took $10 from you. And nowadays, you know, like for example, you could text it to the guy. Hey, I got 10 bucks from you, let me text it to you. On such and such date, I got $10 from you. That's the recommended thing to do. Now, permissible is, what, how do you say permissible in Arabic? Like something that's just allowed. Mubah, mashallah, tabarakallah, mubah. Mubah means permissible. Right now, do you feel like drinking some water? Go ahead. You don't feel like it? Don't, do it? don't worry about it. Drink water, eat food, whatever the case is. Eat, drink, whatever. You know, stand up, sit down, mubah. And then disliked is what? Makruh. Everybody knows this one, makruh. Like, for example, praying asr around sundown or leaving off the sunan. These are things that are makruh to do. And then prohibited, I think everybody knows the term for prohibited is what? What's the term? Haram, yani, haram. Even non-Muslims are haram, right? Even non-Muslims know this term these days. Like, for example, I wrote murder, zina, or fornication, or uh, alcohol. These are all things that are haram. Okay, so now we have a basic concept of what the principles are, whether they're linguistic principles and others. We're going to see more as we go forward. What a ruling is, falls into five categories. Hope that's clear. And now the last one is specific proofs. What would a proof be? So I give one example here, which is pretty straightforward. A statement from the Quran. Allah Ta'ala says what? So avoid the uncleanliness of idols and avoid false testimony. In Surah Hajj, ayah number 30. This verse proves that shirk and false testimony are what? Haram. Why? Because this is, uh, this is considered a uh, dalil, tafsili, uh, uh, a, uh, a, an evidence that is specific, as opposed to contrasting that with general proofs. What would be c considered a, a, a general or comprehensive evidences? Al-adilla al-ijmaliyya or al-kulliyya. They would be things like the Quran, the sunnah, ijma' and qiyas. These are the four things that are like, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we get rulings in general from the Qur'an. In general, we get it from Sunnah. In general, we get it from Ijma' and from Qiyas, which is analogy. We'll get into all these more in detail. Just be patient, inshallah ta'ala. We'll get there. Point number, uh, moving on. So to summarize, I hope you guys see what I did here. What I did was I took the principle that prohibitions imply are for impermissibility, that was the red principle. And then I applied a specific proof, the blue, which was the ayah of the Quran saying, stay away from the filth of idols. And then therefore I came to the Islamic ruling, the green, which was the hukum of what? Idolatry is haram. Seems really, really obvious so far. Is everybody with me so far? I shouldn't say it's so obvious. You know what? Maybe it's not obvious. Does anybody have a question? If anybody has a question, let me know. But yes, go ahead. What? Oh, okay. <laughs> Punchline. Jazakallah <laughs> khair. Yes. Uh, I, I switch between Arabic and English all the time, so just be patient with me in my notes. Uh, play it, inshallah. Moving along. So, now I'll just give a few words about the historical development of usul al-fiqh. This is something that you can go into a lot more detail in, but I thought it's still interesting to note that this term or this concept of usul al-fiqh uh, wasn't right from the time of the Prophet ﷺ. Rather, you find that the Sahaba the tabi'een and the atba'at tabi'een, these are the three first generations. A sahabi is who? A believer who met the Prophet A tabi'i is who? Is a believer who met one of the sahaba. And an atba'at tabi'i is who? Is a believer who met one of the tabi'een. Right? So you, you guys get it? If you, if you met one of these, you know, if, if you met the Prophet let's say for example, Umar ibn al-Khattab, he met the Prophet obviously, right? But then after the death of the Prophet certain people never met the Prophet but they only met Umar. They're considered what? Tabi'een. Then some people, the next generation, they never met 
the Sahaba, but they met the Tabi'een, their Atba'at Tabi'een. Those are considered the first three generations of Islam. So uh, those three would use uh, Usul al-Fiqh to derive rulings, however the terms weren't so specifically defined. They generally used these concepts, but they didn't actually codify it, like in texts. Some famous Usuli scholars were Sa'id ibn al-Musayyib, uh, Urwa ibn al-Zubayr, Sharih al-Qadi, Ibrahim al-Nakhi'i, Rahimahumullah. May Allah Ta'ala have mercy on all of them. These are like, you know, from the first three generations. Then in the second century, you find that the madhahib, you know, what are the four main madhahib that we know of? Hanafi, uh, uh, Maliki, Shafi'i, and Hanbali, right? So in the second century, the madhahib were formed and they formed two main schools, two main sort of, you could say, main uh, schools of thought. In the Hijaz, you find Ahlul Hadith. You could say these are a little bit more uh, uh, literalists, sometimes it's translated as that, like they really stick to the text. Where, and then in Iraq was Ahlul Ra'i, people who were using more logic and rational proofs to derive their rulings. The very first Usul al-Fiqh book that was ever written was called Ar-Risala by Imam al-Shafi'i. Allah subhanAllah, Imam al-Shafi'i is just an incredible human being. The more you study his life, you have a whole madhab after him. He has incredible poetry. Uh, 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 he had a photographic memory and subhanAllah, he is blessed to be the first person to write a book on Usul al-Fiqh. SubhanAllah, Imam al-Shafi'i just was an incredible human being, really. Uh, so something to admire. Now, these two historical styles uh, to arrive at the qawaid, a qaida is a principle, qawaid means uh, principles, plural. So what are they? The jumhur, the three main schools of thought, uh, and, so there's four, we just said they are Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi'i, and Hanbali, right? We said those are the four main schools of thought. Three of them are called the jumhur. In general, when you say jumhur, the majority, you're referring to who? You're referring to Maliki, Maliki, Shafi'i, and Hanbali. Ahmed ibn Hanbal, those three are called the jumhur. And those are known as Tariqatul Mutakallimeen. So these guys, like I said, they lean more heavily on scriptural evidence. So Imam al-Shafi'i wrote the Qawaid in his book Al-Risala based on language, based on logic, and based on number three, evidences found in the Quran and Sunnah, and then the students followed them. So there are a bunch of different famous books that have this much more, you could say, literalist perspective, whether it be from the Shafi'i Madhab, the Hanbali, or whether it be from the Maliki. This is the Jumhur, Tariqatul Mutakallimeen. And famous books here would include Al-Umdah by Al-Qadi, uh, Abdul Jabbar Al-Mu'tazili, Al-Mu'atamad, by Abu Hussein al-Basri, Al-Burhan by Al-Juwaini, and Al-Mustasfa by Abu Hamid al-Ghazali. Then the other track is by who? The Hanafi track, which is also known as Tariqatul al-Fuqaha, the path of the Fuqaha, the jurists. And again, they lean more heavily on what? Rational evidences, more logic-based, more discussion-based. And the students of the madhab use the rulings of Abu Hanifa and his students to derive their principles and their qawaid. And they also have famous books in, in their schools that came later on, which like, for example, are Usul al-Jassas by Ar-Razi, Tamheed al-Fusul fil-Usul by Al-Saraqsi, and Kitab al-Manar by Al-Nasafi. So just, just a, I know this, I don't expect anybody to memorize all this. I'm just trying to give a basic concept of how the history went down. So uh, now what we're dealing with today is what? Try to synthesize both styles. 
not trying to be overly literal, but at the same time, not trying to rely too much on rationality. We're trying to find a nice synthesis of both. We're trying to take the best of both worlds. So this is what happened in later uh, uh, scholars, you know, the, the, the style of uh, al-muta'akhirin, the style of the later uh, generation. They tried to combine both. One book that does this is Jam'ul Jawami' by Tajuddin Subki. And of course, our author that we're dealing with today, which is Wahab Zuhaili. From this book, he, rahimahullah, said that his style is a combination between both, both styles. I am trying to be as literalist as I possibly can, to be faithful to the texts, but at the same time, where rationality needs to be used and you need some sort of uh, rational proofs, therefore I use that as well. So this seems to be, wallah alam, the combination of both. So that's just a, a basic introduction to the topic, but now we want to get into a little bit more of the meat of the uh, uh, topic. I know that was a little bit difficult because no one's going to memorize all this history and all these names of books, but I thought it's necessary that you know how the history went down and who started writing early on. So let's get into some basics, inshallah. Fil adillati ash-shar'iyati. When it comes to evidences in Islam, what is considered an evidence? So I'm going to ask you guys. When I, when I say to you, Give me proof that this is the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do. Give me proof that this is wajib or fard. Give me proof that this is haram. What do you typically first rely upon? What would you? Quran and Sunnah, right? Quran and Sunnah. And we also talked about how there's also ijma', right? Consensus, which we're going to get into a lot more details in each one. Ijma', for those who don't know, is consensus, right? And, and then there's qiyas, which is analogy. So if this is haram, then by analogy, because it has the same properties, therefore it is also by analogy haram. We're gonna get into all the details of this more in detail, but inshallah ta'ala, we'll stick with the basics. Quran and Sunnah, right? Now, if you memorize nothing else today, I just want you to understand the next two slides, inshallah. I want you guys to memorize the terms qat'iyya thubut, dhanniya thubut, qat'iyya dalala, dhanniya dalala. This, inshallah ta'ala, if you can memorize this, it will benefit you a lot. Whenever, so, so I know I, I made the colors kind of funny, and you can see, you'll, if you pay attention close enough, you'll, you'll understand why I did the colors the way they did. You can see what matches and what doesn't. But anyway, so let's get into the definition of words. Qat'i means clear cut. Even it sounds like the word cut. Qat'a means to cut something, right? Qat'i is something that is clear cut. Thabit means firm, how firm it is, right? Thabit means how firm something is. Dalala is dalil. Yani dalil even in Urdu, right? Dalil means evidence. Okay. So now let's break this down. Whenever a transmission comes to us, whether it's the Quran, which has been transmitted to us, whether it's from the Sunnah that has been transmitted to us, there's two things that we're dealing with. The chain of transmission and then the text itself. If anybody's not clear what I'm saying, please let me know. Is it clear so far? When you're dealing with the text of the Quran and Sunnah, there's the chain it came through, and then there's the text of what it says. So the chain is called the, you know, the, 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 the silsila or the isnad, right? The, the isnad. And then the text is called the metan. Don't worry about those terms. I mean, if you can memorize them, it's good. But if not, that's okay too. Now the question is, when it comes to the transmission, that's the first line. Is the transmission clear cut? Is it a clear transmission? That's called qat'iyya thubut. That means there's no doubt in the transmission whatsoever. That's the first uh, uh, on the top right, thubut. Then, however, if it's debatable transmission, that's called thubut. That means the transmission wasn't so strong. 
You guys get that? So that's why I wrote underneath it, how authentic is the statement? Yani, how authentic is, this, is the chain of transmission? That's the question. This, then the second one underneath that, you have dalala, which is the meaning. Is the meaning clear cut, yes or no? Or is it dalala? Is it dhanni means like suspicious? Like is it questionable what it means? In other words, as I asked the question, how many ways can the statement be understood? How clear does the statement arrive at giving a ruling? How clear is it? So if that's not clear to you, and I understand that it's not because this is very theoretical, inshallah, this next slide is going to make it much easier. Is this clear? Can everybody see it? Is, it? is it big enough? I hope so. So now I'm breaking it down into four different boxes. In the top left box, we have dalala clear in terms of its meaning, and clear in terms of its transmission. What is an example of something that is clear in transmission? Well, everything in the Qur'an. Everything in the Qur'an is clear in transmission. No, there's, there's not a single ayah that we doubt. There's not a single verse of the Qur'an that we doubt in terms of its transmission. So everything in the Qur'an is what? It is firm in terms of its transmission. But in terms of its meaning, is it clear or not? Let's take a, take a look at the top left. I took the example of what? Ayatul Kursi, where Allah says in Surah Baqarah, ayah number 255, right there you can see it. Allahu la ilaha illahu. Allah, there is no God but Him. Can you understand that in multiple ways? Like, oh, maybe there's three gods, maybe there's five gods, maybe there's 20 gods. No. Allah, there is no God except Him. Very clear statement. This is, therefore, is it clear in terms of transmission? Is it qat'iyu thubut? Absolutely. Why? Because it's from the Qur'an. Is it qat'iyu dalala? Is it only one way of understanding it? Obviously, yes. Is this clear? Good. That's the clearest one. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Then we go to the one to the right next to it, right? Which is what? Uh, uh, to the top right. That is thubut, clear transmission, but dalala, debatable meaning. What do I mean by that? Well, an example of this would be in the Quran. Because it's from the Quran, that means there's no doubt in terms of its transmission. Transmission. It's thubut. It's clear in terms of its transmission. Allah says in Surah Baqarah, ayah number two thirty-eight, maintain with care the obligatory prayers, and in particular, the middle prayer. Salatul Wusta. What is Salatul Wusta? Now, this is what? Zanniyud Dalala. It is not sure. It is not clear. Why? Because some scholars say, well, you wake up in the morning at Fajr time. You pray Fajr, Zuhr, and then Asr is the middle one, and then Maghrib and Isha. Right? So they say Asr is the middle prayer. Seems like good evidence, right? But wait a second. When does the day start in Islam? Maghrib time. If the day starts at sundown, then that means Maghrib is the first prayer, Aisha is the second, and Fajr is the third. And therefore the middle prayer is what? Salat al-Fajr. And what's so beautiful about this ayah is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, take care of the middle prayer, and it just so happens that the middle prayer could be Fajr, it could be Asr. If it's Fajr, that means it's speaking to who? It's speaking to the people who have trouble waking up early in the morning. The people who are, let's, let's say, uh, night people. They're not so motivated. They sleep in late. So Allah is saying, wake up. Get up, make sure you pray your fajr. But what about people who do wake up and who are very motivated, but they're very motivated for money? Some people, they wake up early and they hustle all day. You know what the hardest prayer is on them? Asr. You know why? Because that's business time, rush hour. That's the time where you're trying to close the deal. That's, I'm at work at Asr time. Sometimes I, I get so caught up with the books and with sales and this and that that I miss my Salat al-Asr. So subhanAllah, whether you're an early bird, hardworking guy, or whether you're kind of a lazy person, subhanAllah, it seems to be 
catching both. Anyway, that's, that's too much detail. The point is what? The point is that this is clear transmission. There's no debout, debating that this ayah is authentic. The question is how is it interpreted? It is dalala. Is everybody understanding these two terms? Let's go to the next example. I go to something that is debatable in transmission, something I just made up. Don't take this seriously, this is just my own made up idea. I said, imagine a hadith with a weak chain of transmission in which a companion says, I saw the Prophet eating an apple. Okay? I don't know of any hadith like this, maybe it exists, maybe it doesn't, but I'm just making it up. I'm saying, imagine it's a weak tra- ch- chain of transmission, it's not authentically transmitted, but just says something so simple. Is there a hundred ways to interpret this hadith? No. It's very, you know, what does an apple mean here? You know, <laughs> no, no, we don't need your philosophy. It's very straightforward. I saw the Prophet eating an apple. That means, okay, he ate an apple. That's it, khalas, end of story, right? So it is what? Clear in terms of meaning. There's no three ways, two ways, five ways of interpreting it. It's very straightforward in its meaning. But in terms of its transmission, let's say it's a weak hadith. Then let's go to the last category, which is to the bottom right. It says what? Both dhanni thubut and dhanni dalala, which means debatable in meaning and debatable in transmission. Let's imagine a hadith with a weak chain of transmission in which a companion says that the Prophet loved to spend time with those who are close to him. Again, I make this up, so nobody take it seriously. It's just an example to help the mind. So imagine a companion says the Prophet loved to spend time with people who he was close to. Oh, close in what way? Close in relation, like family? Close in proximity, like his neighbors? Close to him in terms of following his example, as in those who follow the sunnah the closest? What do you mean by close? And so therefore, it is both dhanniyu thubut and dhanniyu dalala. Is this clear to everybody? I want you guys to memorize these terms, and inshallah, if we get that much this, this week, then we're very good. I'm going to close up with a few more points, inshallah. Now, in terms of the two types of evidences, they, they fall into, there's 11, 11 things that are used as evidence, 11 styles, 11, you could say, methods to arrive at a ruling in Islam. The evidences that are agreed upon, we call them what? Adillatun muttafiqun alayhi bayna jumhur al-ulama. Evidences that most scholars agree about. Simple and straightforward. What are they? As we mentioned them before. Quran, Sunnah, Al-Ijma' Al-Qiyas. That's whatever's in the Qur'an, we can use that as evidence. The Sunnah, whatever the Prophet said, did, silently approved of, right? Uh, and, uh, and so forth. And Ijma', what all the believers agree upon, well then there's not much room for debate, and then Qiyas, analogy. We'll get into all those more in detail, inshallah. And then evidences that are disputed, adillatun mukhtalifun fiha, are called what? Al-istihsan, al-maslaha, al-mursala, al-istislah, al-urf, so these 11 we're going to go over in the upcoming weeks to understand how to go how to use all these as evidences to derive rulings in Ta'ala. so hopefully by the end of these next couple of weeks we will go through all these four another so notice that there's 11 if you add them all up there's 11 different uh, sources of evidence you can also categorize them in two different ways which in another different way which is what Another way of categorizing the two types of evidences is what? Based on naql, based on transmission. Yani al-Qur'an, we just received it in terms of text. It's no, there's, no, there's, no, there's no debating, it's just, it is what it is. We received the Qur'an from the generations before us. A sunnah, same thing. It just comes to us in text, naql. 
Ijma' uh, also whatever the Sahaba and Tabi'een agreed upon, it comes to you based on text. Al-Urf, custom, it is what it is. Certain things are custom in our, in our lands, we can't debate about it. It's customary, it's customary. Sha'u man qablana, from previous scriptures, same thing, uh, previous uh, nations. And madhab al-Sahaba, what the Sahaba, what, the, what their methodology was, this is again coming to us through transmission, and this is just coming through text. However, based on rationality, we have Qiyas, Al-Maslaha, uh, Al-Mursala, Al-Istihsan, Istishab, and Sadd al-Dara'ir. All these, I'm sure many of you are looking at saying, what do these stuff mean? And that's exactly what's going to bring you back next week, inshallah ta'ala. And the final point that I want to mention is what? Is this wonderful hadith that does have some weakness in it, but still a, 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 a hadith that is used uh, by scholars to demonstrate the tartil or the, the order in which we derive rulings. Uh, uh, when the Prophet wanted to send uh, Mu'adh ibn Jabal to uh, Yemen, you know, send him as a delegate to go teach the people Islam because a bunch of people, like a, a whole area of people accepted Islam in Yemen. So he's now sending one of his top scholars, one of his top students, Mu'adh ibn Jabal. He's sending him to go teach them. So when he's going to send him, he says, قَالْ كَيْفَ إِذَا عَرَضَ لَكَ قَضَاءٌ How are you going to judge when the occasion of deciding a case arises? How are you going to derive a ruling if, you're not, if I'm not around? You can't call me, you can't text me. So what are you going to do? قَالْ أَقْضِي بِكِتَابِ اللَّهِ He says, I'll judge according to Allah's book. قَالَ فَإِن لَمْ تَجِدْ فِي كِتَابِ اللَّهِ What if you don't find it in Allah's book? He says, قَالَ فَبِسُنَّةِ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وسلم. Then by your sunnah. So we're seeing an order here. First I'm going to check with the Qur'an number one, top priority. Then if I don't find it there, I'm going to try to remember what you have said to me, the different actions you've taken, I'm going to try to derive it from there. فَإِن لَمْ تَجِدْ فِي سُنَّةِ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وسلم, وَلَا فِي كِتَابِ اللَّهِ What if you don't find it in either one of them? قَالَ أَجْتَهِدُ رَأْيِي وَلَا آلُ he says, uh, he says, then I'll do my best to form an opinion and I shall spare no effort. So this now you're seeing is qiyas. I'm using my own analogy to I try to, based on previous uh, texts, I'm going to try to, and based on previous evidences of Quran and Sunnah, I'm going to try to do my best to derive a proper opinion and I'm going to ajtahid. I'm going to become a mujtahid. I'm going to put in the effort to do so. فَضَرَبَ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ So the Prophet struck his chest like, good job man. <laughs> Smacked him on the chest and said, وَقَالَ الْحَمْدُ لِلَّهِ الَّذِي وَفَّقَ رَسُولَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ لِمَا يُرْضِي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ He said to him, what praise is to Allah who has helped the messenger of the messenger of Allah to find something which pleases the messenger of Allah. So I hope today, inshallah ta'ala, I've given you enough to make you interested in continuing to define all those terms, inshallah, to really understand how we derive rulings in Islam. Uh, like I said, we, we mentioned 11 different points, and that's just the first section. So that's the first section we're going to deal with. Those 11 ones, we're going to have slides for each one, inshallah ta'ala, to go through them in detail. Jazakallah khair. Barakallah fikum. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh.